When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Spaceman is the nothing personal word of the day, not the nickname for Bill Spaceman Lee, a former pitcher for the Expos, but Spaceman because we've got an actual Spaceman. Terry Verts, an astronaut, a real live astronaut, has agreed to join us here on Nothing Personal for a Samson sit down. Terry, how are you? Doing good, man. I'm so excited to be here, David. This is awesome. Wish I was there in person. Are you on Earth right now or are you in space? Yeah, I'm on Earth today. It's my, it's my, you know, it's Earth Day today. (laughs) Do you find yourself confused sometimes? Like some days you're on Earth and some days you're on space, or do you know like when gravity is upon you? You know what? At night, I I put some music on. Last night, I was putting some uh, sounds from Earth that I had when I was in space, and it actually had me like I was dreaming about space last night, listening to that music that I was listening to when I was in space. So that's pretty cool. So for those paying attention, this is Terry Verts, who is an astronaut, not just on a space shuttle, but actually went to and lived on the International Space Station. We're going to get to all that. We're going to get to so many questions that you would have about someone who lived in space and what it's like. But I want to start, Terry, with one thing. Just tell me, uh, when most kids grow up, when they're kids, they say, what do you want to do? I want to be a basketball player. I want to be a baseball player. I want to be an astronaut. People say that, but then no one ever does it. So I don't know if anyone's ever met an astronaut, but meeting you, I've met a lot of athletes. Meeting you and knowing you is a highlight. When did you know you wanted to be an astronaut? How does that work for a real astronaut? So when I was a kid, I was probably five, maybe in kindergarten. And the first book I ever read was about Apollo. And I was hooked. You know, I just knew I wanted to do that. It was so cool. Guys went to the moon. Um, So I grew up with pictures of space shuttles and uh, galaxies and stuff like that on the wall. But I, you know what? I also love baseball. And I also really wanted to be a shortstop for the Baltimore Orioles. Uh, but there was this guy named Cal Ripken in the way. So I had to, I had to take my second, uh, my second choice. But when did you know? Because when you're a kid, we all had it. When I was a kid, I had those glow-in-the-dark stars on the ceiling. So yeah, when you look yeah. up at night, it looks like you're in space. But then you realize that, you know, you're not going to be an astronaut. You actually <laughs> wanted to be one and became one. Do you go to college for that? Do you go to yeah. are you a PhD in mathematics, physics, <clears throat> astronomy? So when I was, it was about 13, I read a book called The Right Stuff, which by the way, is one of the best space movies of all time. Um, but the book's even better. And it told, it told me what to do. These guys had been fighter pilots and test pilots, and then they went on to be the original astronauts. And so the, uh, that was kind of my template. I didn't have anybody who knew 
what to do. I was the first guy in my family to go to college, you know, so I, it was that book really that, that laid out the map. How do you, how do you get to be an astronaut? So that's what I, I went to the air force Academy, majored in math, became an F-16 pilot and uh, had a lot of luck along the way. So I, I think you're not making it as exciting as it actually is. An F-16 <laughs> pilot is, is something that we, is that like the Top Gun plane? Yeah, there's a mod, there's, there it is right there. My F-16. It was funny. I got, you know, I did pretty well in pilot training. So I got a fighter, you know, F-16s were the, one of the top choices. And I went home to tell my grandmother and I said, grandma, I'm going to be an F-16 pilot. Oh, what's that? So I showed her a picture and she looked at it and she said, well, when do you get to fly the big ones? <laughs> I was like, grandma, I just worked my butt off and had to beat out everybody else so I could fly the little one. <laughs> so she, do you remember the time for me to finally get to fly the big planes? Do you remember the time when you flew to have lunch with me and Conine? <clears throat> I, it was awesome. It was one of the best parts. So at NASA, we have these T-38s, which I've got a T-38 model over here. Um, and it's the most important training we do. It, it, flying jets is the best possible way to practice for spaceflight. We call it spaceflight readiness training. Um, but when you fly, you have to go somewhere. So a couple times I came down to Florida and had lunch and then flew back to work. It was pretty awesome. So you were, you were in Texas at the time I was. and you yeah, would yeah. call me and Conine and say, Hey, do you guys want to have lunch today? And we were at the ballpark cause we'd have a game. And the first time that you did this, I remember we said, well, you know, we're in Florida and you said, no problem. I'm going to get on the plane and I'll be there in an hour and a half and we'll have lunch <laughs> and then I'll go back. And right. you did that. You literally took, and, and, and we said to ourselves, are you using government property incorrectly? And the answer was, it's actually, they want you to do stuff like that. It's required. It's like a, you have to, you know, if I don't do that, I get fired. So you got to, you got to fly somewhere. You got to fly somewhere. Why not South Florida? Oh my God. It's so perfect. Okay. So we know that you became an astronaut. You sort of skipped over. You read the right stuff. We all, I watched the right stuff, but I couldn't yeah. become an astronaut, but PhD. Did you have, do you have a PhD? No, I got a master's degree and I got a, I got a picture of me with my one-year-old baby sitting on my lap and I'm typing on a laptop. It was pretty funny. I, and once NASA hired me, I kind of, my extra, you know, graduate studies stopped because I'm like, why do I need to get any more degrees? I'm already hired by NASA. So how does NASA hire you? Do you fill out an online application? How does that work? <clears throat> so back in the day, I filled out a stack of paper that thick, you know, they put out an app uh, notice, Hey, we're going to hire a new space shuttle class. And at the time I was in test pilot school, I was still a student. I hadn't even graduated. So a lot of everybody there at Edwards Air Force Base wants to be an astronaut, but everybody was like, Hey, we're still students. We haven't graduated. I'll just wait till the next time. And I was stupid enough to go, why I'm just going to do it. This is why I'm here. So you fill out this big application. They start off with thousands of people. They narrow it down to a few hundred. They narrow it down to about a hundred that come down for interviews. And I went down to Houston for an interview um, which is pretty awesome. It, it, I was just like, this is the coolest thing I've ever done because there was astronauts and space shuttle simulators and it's mostly medical exams. They're just checking you out. And every once in a while, they'll find a guy that's missing a kidney or, you know, they'll find really bad problems for people. But um, anyway, while I was doing that, all of my friends assured me, Terry, there's no way you're going to get hired. There's no way they're going to pick you. You're too young. This other guy has more experience. This other guy's better looking than you are. And I was like, you're right. There's no way they're going to pick me, but this is fun. I'm just going to go have fun. And I think that loose attitude was the key. You know, like I had fun and I enjoyed it. I wasn't all uptight and nervous, probably like in baseball, right? The teams that can be loose and not get too 
uh, overwhelmed by the big lights uh, do better. And that, that was the key, I think, to that, um, that interview. But here's my, here's my lesson, David. Don't tell yourself no. Like if I were going to give people advice, I give little kids this advice, I give old people this advice. Don't tell yourself no, because in life, there's so many like opportunities that come up or, man, I'd really love to write a novel, but I can't do it. I can't write or whatever, whatever it is. I'd love to start that business, but I got to, you know, if, if you tell yourself, no, you're never going to get that dream, whatever it is. Um, if you say, all right, I'm going to go for it. You have a shot at it. Um, so that's kind of a, that first step of at least giving it a try. Cause a lot of my classmates said, Oh, I'm not going to apply this time. I'll wait. Well, then there was a space shuttle accident, Columbia. And then NASA hired way too many astronauts. So I had to wait a decade. We all had to wait a decade to fly. So these guys that really were smarter than me and really were better looking than me and they would have gotten hired, but they didn't cause they didn't even apply cause they told themselves no. So that's, that was kind of like my career advice that I learned through my astronaut experience. Is that part of the advice that's in the book that just came out? You have a book called how to astronauts an insider's yeah. guide to leaving planet earth. Do you talk through some of that in your book? I- Tell us about the book. You got to pump it, please. I, I got it. Here's the book, man. It just came out yesterday. It's so awesome. Um, it's, I've been doing some amazing interviews on BBC and Forbes and would be on C-SPAN. It's been really, this publisher is really great. Um, but the, so the book, I'll talk about the book. It's a, I've got two golden retrievers that are demanding attention right here. They're not happy that I'm talking to you. They want me to be throwing a ball for them. <laughs> um, the, so the book, it is not a memoir. Uh, there's a million of those. Um, it's not a technical book. It's for anybody to read. The goal for the book is for you to laugh and say, wow. So I wrote it in like 51 short essays, different topics about space flight, um, stuff you would expect. How do you train to do a launch on a space shuttle? Or how do you do medical training or um, learning Russian? Like the things that you know, how to fly jets, T-38s. And then there's some funny, probably unexpected chapters in there. Uh, are there aliens? Um, what do you do with a dead body? If your crewmate dies, what do you do with their body? Uh, there's a chapter about sex in space. So uh, it's, it's fun. It's something you can read at the beach. Okay, <laughs> I, I see. Your, your eyes got big. <laughs> Wait a minute. So, you, so this book is exactly what I want to talk about because it's all the different topics that interest me. And yes. I want people to buy the book, so we're not going to cover all of them. But there's a few <laughs> we definitely have to touch on. Yeah. So you were on the International Space Station, if people don't realize that. That is a floating, well, it's not floating. What's the call that the space station does? It's a... It's orbiting. Orbiting is the perfect word. Thank you, sir. Yeah. Uh, that's why I'm not an astronaut. So it's an <laughs> orbiting uh, home. It's a bunch of different pods, and they're all combined, and it yep. orbits around the Earth. And you lived there. How long were you there? In total, over seven months. When you came to Florida to watch my launch, that was a two-week mission. We actually installed the last two modules. So that was the final, quote-unquote, assembly of the space station. Um, And then I went back a few years later on a Russian rocket. And we talked about you and Conine coming over for that launch, but it was – it's a – it's a nightmare to get there uh, to Baikonur. It's anyway, Kazakhstan, isn't it? Yeah, Baikonur and Kazakhstan. <laughs> if you look on your map, find, look for nowhere, and in the middle of that is where the Russians launched the rockets from. Uh, so, th- and that was a 200-day mission. So, I did two weeks and then 200 days. So, I, I want to talk about the 200-day mission a little mm-hmm. bit. So people go to the International Space Station. That is obviously, I mean, you were on the shuttle 130 which yeah. is the two-week mission, and right. that is rare. That's like being an all-star 
every year in professional sports in order to go on a shuttle mission. But then you went into the Hall of Fame because how many people get chosen to go to the space station? That is just the, the top of the top. How did you, what went into that decision when you were approached? Did you approach them? Did you do it earlier than other people like when you wanted to become an astronaut? How did it come to pass that you lived on yeah. the space station for seven months? So when you show up at, when you show up at NASA, clearly you want to fly in space. And like I said, I had to wait a long time. Everybody my age basically had to wait between eight and 12 years because of all these things. And one day (laughs) I was getting on the elevator, leaving work, you know, Friday afternoon at five and my boss gets on the elevator and he just looks at me and goes, Oh, by the way, you're going to be the 130 pilot. And I was like, okay, (laughs) like the biggest news of my life. I had this giant family celebration that night, but you know, it was just passing in the night. Oh, by the way, you're on the by the way, the Hall of Fame called. You're getting in the Hall of Fame. Um, so that was how I got on 130. And then after that, I was like, do I want to go back to the Air Force and try and be a general and whatever? Or do I stick around at NASA? And I did this. I went to Harvard Business School, actually. And when I was there, I realized that, you know, there's a lot of really cool stuff to do in life. Um, but I'm not done flying in space yet. So I came back to NASA. And, and then I, <laughs> I got another email. This time it was a different boss. And she said, Hey, Terry, I forwarded your name to this international panel. And that's the group that assigns the crew. And that's how I found out about that. Totally no fanfare, no big deal. Just an email passing in the night, you know, oh, by the way, we forwarded your name to the Hall of Fame and you're in. It was like, it was that kind of thing. That's how I found out about my flights. When you have family, uh, does the conversation go like this? Uh, I'm moving to space for seven months. (laughs) And if I get chosen, and I'm not even discussing this, I know it's a huge sacrifice and I'm going to miss you, but I get a chance to live in space for seven months and there's only a handful of people who've ever done that. Or is there a negotiation that goes on? Because this is not a two-week mission. We all go on two-week road trips. I mean, your road trip is into space on a shuttle, which is the coolest road trip ever. But right. going for seven months, it's, it's not even like being deployed in the armed forces for eight months at a time. You're living in space. Yeah, you're so not on the planet anymore. You, you're literally not on the planet. Yeah. So what was your conversation with yourself, with your family, with your friends? Was it just a no-brainer that if you're in NASA, you want to go to the space station? Or does it take a certain kind of crazy to agree to do what's necessary to live in the space station? Well, it's for sure. You know, all, every astronaut there, their only goal is to get another flight. It doesn't matter how many you've had. All you want is the next flight. And... um you know, in a lot of ways, the profession is pretty selfish because, you know, you get all the glory and fun and your family has to deal with all the stress and, you know, you're gone. And oh, by the way, you might die because, um, you know, that happens every once in a while. So there's a lot of uh, it's a tough personal life as an astronaut. And it's easy. You know, we're the heroes. We got our I got my blue NASA jacket here. You know, we get to go out and and be the all-American heroes. But there, it's it is a cost for sure. I know for me personally, it was, and for a lot of folks, um, it's tough. You know, I was, I was doing this spacewalk and as I was coming in, we had had a problem with water leaking in the helmet. Um, a guy named Luca Parmitano the year before me almost drowned. He had a really bad leak. His helmet was full. He couldn't see. It was really bad and he survived, but it was a really close call. So when I was coming in after my second spacewalk, my helmet started filling up with water and it was slowly, but the whole visor was full. You know, I could bang my head and I could see water on the whole thing. The back of my head was soaking wet. Like the whole helmet was full of water. And I didn't say anything. I didn't say anything. I didn't want to freak anybody out. Finally, it's like, Houston, there's some water in here. And everybody was calm. They handled it well. But my daughter was driving home from school. 
and they cut in on the radio and they said, astronaut Terry Virch has got water in his spacesuit and he might be drowning and blah, blah, blah. You know, and she was just a kid and like, there's nothing she can do. She can't text, Hey, are you okay? So it was that, that was just one kind of anecdote of the, of the stress. Um, my wife at the time got this text at four in the morning, the crew is sheltering in the Russian segment and they're all okay. So whenever throughout my air force career, whenever somebody would call my then wife and say, Terry's okay. She would, she's like, all right, he's did, you know, she knew I wasn't okay. Like I had an airplane that almost crashed or whatever. So that those are just some of the stresses that families have to go through that you don't, you don't see that on CNN or NASA TV or whatever. Were you tempted to say, Houston, we have a problem? Did that <laughs> enter your mind at all or not? <laughs> it didn't. Uh, that's, no, is that, no. that's just the movies, right? That's just uh, Apollo 13, yeah. Okay, so you land in the space station. You know you've yeah. got seven months in front of you. Can you walk me through what is day one like on the space station? How, like, what, what happens when you get there? Do you unpack a suitcase? Do they show you to your room? Do you check in? What, what happens? Actually, yes. Yeah. So for the long-duration mission, I had these big... You, they're, they're the size of suitcases full of my underwear and t-shirts and stuff. And I had to get them arranged. So that's exactly what happened on that. But on my first flight, that was on my second flight on my first flight. I know the dogs are bothering me on my first flight. You get into space on a space shuttle, never been in orbit. And I had the worst headache of my life. I mean, my, like your brain is just going, what in the heck just happened? You are, you know, it, it's very confused. And so, and I could only move my head like about this fast. If you had to turn around and look for something, just move, rotating your head was super painful. Um, I was going through a lot of ibuprofen and that lasted about 48 hours. And then on the, my third morning in space, um, it was like a light switch went off and I was fine. Like that headache disappeared and all of a sudden I was fine. And for the rest of the two weeks, I was, I was, had a big smile on my face cause it was so awesome. And then, you know, four years later, five years later, when I went back, it was from minute one, there was no problem. My body, my brain re remembered what had happened. It's like there's some rewiring happening on your neurons. I don't know what happens, but it takes your brain a while to go, okay, I used to be on earth and now I'm not. And then once it figures it out, it's, it's good. It was a really cool process. That learning curve was really cool. So... You're, you're, I'm drawing a distinction, which you're not, so I, I must be wrong here. When you're on the shuttle, it's two weeks orbiting the Earth. It's a two-week mission. You do some spacewalks. You go to the space station. You put together some pods. You have a mission. But right. then you're back in two weeks. Right. Isn't it a totally different mentality when you're moving to the space station for seven months? Yeah. So going the shuttle leaves without you. Like, you're stuck. You're the, you, you can't leave. Exactly. So... <laughs> Going on a space shuttle flight is like a road trip and going on a space station mission is like getting traded. Um, that, yeah. There's your baseball analogy. <laughs> we have acronym in the military. One's a TDY, which is a temporary duty. And the other one's a PCS, which is permanent change of station. But the baseball analogy is road trip and getting traded. So yeah, you're, you're there. And the station is big. It's about a 747. There's a lot of room inside there, but you can't leave it at all ever. For You can do a spacewalk which you're on it. You haven't gone anywhere. You're just attached to it. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's definitely a long-term uh, mission for sure. Is there a chef on the space station? Yeah, you're looking at him. So you, <laughs> did you, did you eat every, how many people lived on the space station with you for those seven? Six, months? six, there were six, there were of six total people. Did yeah. you guys eat three 
meals a day together, all six of you? No, 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 no. You're, you're basically on your own. I, I made a real effort to try to have dinner together, especially with the Russians, because the Russians have their half of the station and we have our half. And so it's very easy for them to just spend all day on their half and us to spend all day on our half and never see each other. So I made an effort. I didn't want to have the Russians and us. I wanted to have one crew. So I would make my dinner, which is in these little green bags like the army guys get, MREs. Um, and I would put them in a Ziploc and float down and we would listen to Russian radio and they would tell, they would teach me bad words in Russian that you don't learn in Russian class. And it was, we had a great time. That was the highlight of my time in space was hanging out with the Russians down there. Well, what were you there for? If that's the highlight, like, was there a mission? Oh, to- Yeah. So my shuttle flight was to finish building the station, but this long duration mission was science. Uh, The mission of the space station is science. So they have, um, during my mission, we had 250 experiments. Uh, Some of them were just a box. You'd plug it in and never do anything with it again. Other stuff was really involved. Like we did rodent research with mice. And so we were dissecting mice for weeks. And that was a lot. That's a lot of hands-on work. Um, I did this, uh, I did this um, other one for salmonella and E. coli vaccines for a major drug company. And they're, you know, they're trying to develop these vaccines. So we were infecting these little worms called C. elegans with these uh, diseases. I got a funny story about that too. So you have a work day, Terry? Like literally what, what time is it? Monday through Friday, 7.30. Yeah. 7.30 in the morning, you start off with your daily planning conference. It's a, it's a meeting. So, uh, you got your, uh, all the different mission controls. So there's Houston, there's Moscow, there's Europe, there's Japan, and there's Huntsville. Huntsville, Alabama is where all the payloads are done, where all the science is done. So you get on the radio and you go, good morning, Houston. Then you go, and then you go through the whole thing. And, uh, they go, today's good. Oh, don't forget this. We changed this, whatever. It's just a quick tag up. And then you go work for 10, 11, 12 hours. And then in the evening, you have another DPC. And they say, hey, this worked well today. Hey, do you have the serial number from this part? And tomorrow, expect this. And then you got the evenings free. And in between, you're doing science. You're doing maintenance. Uh, you're exercising. They give you two and a half hours of exercise a day. Um, you're doing unloading cargo vehicles, loading cargo vehicles, getting ready for spacewalks. You're doing interviews you know, with, with, uh, David Sampson, nothing personal with David Sampson. So, um, what time is it in space, Terry? It is, uh, GMT. So you, so, so the Russians use GMT and you use, everybody GMT. uses GMT. Yeah. So it's seven thirty GMT that you have this meeting. Exactly. And, and which so is, are you, which is London time basically. Yeah. So are you seen how, do you, do you wake up with the sunrise? How does that, what, what no. is the sun like in space? I, I have my, I had my Omega Speedmaster that beat at me. That was my alarm for uh, seven months. Yeah. So there's no, in my crew quarters, which is like a phone booth, um, there's no window. The Russian crew quarters actually have windows, which is, would be really bad because I would never sleep. I would just sit there with the window, looking out the window all the time. So if you had a window open, um, well, the window cover open. If you had a window open, it, it wouldn't last long. If you had a window cover open, um, uh, it would be light and dark and light and dark every hour and a half. So you couldn't, there's no way you could sleep. So the sunrise and the sunset happens every 90 minutes in space? Yeah, it, t- it takes 90 minutes to go around the earth. So, so how do you know when it's been a day? You look at your watch. 
Yeah. You just have to look at your watch and, and keep your body on GMT time. Cause if you try, if you did local time, like where the sun is, you know, the sun is moving, like you can see it move. You're, you're flying so fast. You're going 25 times the speed of sound. So if you just use local time, you, you, a human body couldn't do that. You'd be falling asleep every 45 minutes. Uh, I, I want to think about this because it's blowing my tiny brain. Yeah. So you have a sunrise and sunset every 90 minutes, yeah. which means in a 24-hour period, you're having 18. I'm doing rough math. 16. Like so it's 16 days. You have 16 days every day. Per yeah. day. Mm-hmm. Okay. 16 and, sunrises and 16 sunsets. And does the sun rise in the east? And how does. Does that, how does that work? It does because we're flying towards the east. But here's something that'll blow your mind. So, you know, the earth is this ball and the orbit is like a hula hoop around it, right? So the hula hoop is fixed in space. So as the earth goes around the sun, um, sometimes as you fly over the earth, the sun is right in front of you. So sometimes the sun rises there and then it sets right behind you. But sometimes the hula hoop is off to the side to where if you're the sun over there and we're flying this way, the sun is over there. And so it never, that's called high beta. So the angle between your orbit, if the sun's here, your beta is zero. If the sun is there, your beta is 90. If it's like off your left wing or off your right wing. And when it's off your left wing or right wing, it never sets or it never rises. It's just constantly on the horizon. So I had a week in the wintertime where that happened. And I had a week in the summertime during my mission when that happened, where the sun never set. It was just this constant twilight. Um, which was really an interesting, really, really an interesting time. I did some time lapses of whole orbit, a 90-minute you know, video time lapse of that. It was really cool just to see the sun just does a little circle on the, on the horizon. So I'm trying to think about what that would do to my body clock, right? Because we <laughs> all try to figure it out. If you, and like living in the North Pole or South exactly, Pole, exactly. it's very difficult on people. Did you have difficulty in space with that issue or do you just close the shades and not you close the it? shades and you look at your omega watch and you just set the alarm because otherwise your the body couldn't take it even mars okay so mars is 24 and a half hour day so the planet mars is basically like earth it's the, it takes it 30 extra minutes to spin around right so these scientists out of jpl that do these mars probes in the early days, they, they were like, well, let's just, we'll just put ourselves on the Mars clock. So the scientists would be working, you know, controlling the rover on Martian time. And uh, my buddy was one of those scientists. And he said they tried that for about a week or two. And then it just, it destroyed them. Like they couldn't function anymore. Um, so you think, like me personally, I would love to have an extra 30 minutes a day. Um, but our bodies are not designed that way. Our bodies are designed for 24-hour days. So is, even, even guys trying to be on Mars time, it doesn't work. If you try to be on ISS time every 90 minutes, there's no way, no way that would work. And you had a brain, you just talked about food in a Ziploc bag. So you never went over to the Russian side for dinner and had like goulash and soup. Oh yeah, absolutely. In fact, they give you like most of the food, you get what you get. There's no choice, but they give you a little bit of choice. So you get basically like a backpack full of food every month that you get to pick. And as part of my selections, I picked some Russian food. I love Russian food. It's meat and potatoes and soup. And the best, the best thing about it was fish. Um, American, the Americans don't, we have like bags of tuna that you get at the grocery store. That was our fish. So the Russians have really good fish. They come in like little cat food cans. 
Um, so we, I love those things. They were great. The Russians were sick of them. They're like eating can, cans of fish, you know, three meals a day. They were sick of them. So they liked to eat the food that we were tired of. And we liked to eat the food that they were tired of. It was just about the variety. So it, were, it worked out really well. Actually, we never threw any food away because they liked our food that we didn't like. And we liked their food that they didn't like. Did you lose weight, Terry, in that seven months? Yeah, I lost about a kilo a month. Um, I was in the, I was in good shape, man. I, it's like being on a health spa for seven months. I, you know, I was doing two and a half hours of exercise a day um, and not eating McDonald's, you know, it was nothing, no fat, no, you know, it was just, it was really pretty good. Um, your legs get skinny though. Cause you're not walking ever unless you're running on the treadmill. So the, your lower body gets skinny, but my upper body got in pretty good shape. Cause I was, you know, working out on this NASA workout. There's a chapter about that in the book, NASA workout machine. So you spent two and a half hours working out. I'm training for a long race right now, and I'm picturing you on a treadmill in space. Do you have to strap yourself to it? You do, absolutely. So you got to, this chapter in here is pretty cool. Um, and it's two and a half hours. I mean, that includes, you got to get in your, that includes getting dressed and getting clean up afterwards and setting up the equipment. Um, but you wear basically shoulder pads with these big bungee cords that hold you down. And it's hard to do because it's like all this weight up, high it's not stable right like your center of gravity is not stable um so you get pulled down on the treadmill and it takes some time to figure out how to run on a treadmill in space but once you do it's so i mean i loved it that was the best that was the best part of my day because it felt like like i was walking which was that feeling i really craved it was pretty cool because the other 23 and a half hours i was floating (laughs) and are there showers no showers for 200 days. It's every, so, 13, every 13 year old boy's dream. So you could just clean up with a washcloth? Yeah. In fact, so I made an IMAX film while I was up there, A Beautiful Planet, which was the highlight of what I did in space. It was awesome. But I joke, I got, I got paid twice as much as my crewmates for doing a nude scene because I do a shower scene in A Beautiful Planet. Um, I got paid two times zero. <laughs> but uh, so. No showers, um, just a wet, just a wash cloth. Wash cloth. You just squirt some hot water in there, and so there's these little drink bags. They're like Capri Suns, you know, metal drink bags. They got tang powder in them and whatever. You fill them up with water, and you get tea or coffee or fruit juice or milk, whatever it is. They also have soap bags, so some of them have soap in them. And there's a spreadsheet that tells you. You know, you get one pair of running shorts a week, one Under Armour t-shirt every two weeks, blah, blah, blah. And this on the soap spreadsheet, it said two. So I assumed it was one every two days. So I was using these bags every other day. And after a couple of weeks, I call Houston. I'm like, hey, I can't find any more soap. Where, where's my other soap? And they were like, no, that was one every two weeks, not one every two days. So I was at the soap after two weeks with six months still in front of me. So did you go visit the Russians and get their soap? There, there was an emergency stash. I found a few of these things in the, hidden in the space station. But for the most part, it, it sucked to be me. So they, we, did, we also had these like camping towels that you put, filled them up with water. This is, there's a chapter about this in the book. Um, and uh, some of the camping towels had soap in them. So I got soap like integrated into this camping towel. But we had two kinds. There was like a good camping towel and a really crappy one. And I said, look, guys, we're going to use up all the bad ones so that future crews don't have to deal with this. So it was basically like having a paper towel. You just wash yourself and it would turn into a cloud of dust. 
<laughs> You've mentioned so, the movie yeah. in the book, Terry. Tell us. But I, I need to, first of all, where can I see this movie, the IMAX movie? I haven't seen it. I want to review it on. You know what, Dis- Disney? You haven't seen it. You got to watch it. It's really great. I'm going to watch it um, today. It's, it's what, right what, what, Beautiful what, Planet. Disney just released it on Hulu. They put a bunch of IMAX films out on Hulu. So if you got Hulu, you can watch it there. Other than that, it's on called The um, Beautiful Planet on Hulu. A Beautiful Planet. Yeah. All right. And what about where can we buy your book? Because uh, we want to buy a lot just, of copies of it. The best, the best place, if you've got a local bookstore, you know, support your local bookstores. It's, it's in all the bookstores. You can also get them on Amazon or, you know, any, anywhere you can get books. You can get How to Astronaut. And so um, are you doing but, a book tour, by the way? Or all book tours? I started book it yesterday. COVID. The book, book came out yesterday. They were going to send me to 20 cities. So I was going to be, you know, a month on United Airlines. But then 2020 happened. So um, I'm going to be on 20 Zoom calls for the next couple of weeks doing stuff like this. But okay. you know, I got, I got another movie coming out, David. Do you know about that? No, tell me. So I made a, I directed a film called One More Orbit last year. And we took off and landed from the Kennedy Space Center. We flew around Earth, went over the North Pole and South Pole. So we did this circumnavigation. It was like a world record attempt to fly around Earth. And originally I was going to be the pilot on this thing. And the guy that put it together, it happened at the last minute. I didn't have time to get trained. So he said, well, let's make a movie about it. And that's what I want to do in life. That's kind of the direction I'm moving. So I got to direct this film. I got a patch on my, uh, where'd it go? Yeah, there's my patch from the film. One More Orbit. One More Orbit. It's a documentary. It comes out next month on the, on the you know, video on demand and stuff. So there's I'm quite super, a bit of things you're talking about. It. I like that. You're doing stuff. Yeah. You're an astronaut. You're the coolest. Okay, so... You're on the space station. I'm not going to ask you about sex because I'm going to make people buy the book, but clearly I want to know. I want to know about aliens, but that's in the book. Well, I I got to ask quickly about aliens. Did you see any aliens? Just give me the net net. So, (laughs) no, my, I, the, one of the guys I was with is Gennady Padalka, the human with more time in space than anybody else. 879 days in space. This guy spent, he also came with me on this one more orbit movie that we filmed. He joined us and was, so we were talking about aliens yesterday on a call like this. And he was like, Teddy, I did not hear any knocking on the, on the space station. <laughs> so yeah, I, you know, I, you have to read about my philosophy. You assume they're out there because there's so many billions of planets, but I never heard any knocks on the, on the, on the hatch. You never saw anything that you couldn't explain no. while you were in space. Not, not, that that I can, not that I can tell you about on this interview. Because it's so top secret. <laughs> Because you'd have to shoot me and all my listeners. But they're watching. They're wondering when you're up in space, you're looking down. You know, there's a whole big thing here on Earth of people who think the Earth is flat. They're called like flat earthers or something. Yeah. Flat earth truthers. Yeah. When you're in space and you're looking at the Earth, it's clearly round, right? (laughs) I've seen photos, but I'm wondering when you're actually looking at it yourself, it looks round. So if it was flat, of course, I I saw the Earth. It's round. So when a couple years ago, one of these basketball guys, I forgot who it was. I don't want to use the wrong name, but he tweeted about flat earth. And I was like, dude, let me send you my book. The earth is round. I flew around it. Um, it was Kyrie it was, Irving, by the it way. It was Kyrie Irving. Yeah. I just, I didn't want to say his name. So <laughs> if it was flat and I launched to the East, I wouldn't be here talking to you. I'd still be zooming off to the East, you know, but thankfully it's round. And I came back around and we've known that for about 2000 years. So I watched the social dilemma last night. I heard you talking about that. And it, 
Oh, my head explodes. My head is exploding. The NBA playoffs are heating up, and so is the action at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NBA. With same-game parlays, live betting, odds boosts, and so much more, don't miss out as the NBA postseason winds down. Through the first round of the NBA playoffs, it's still all about the Celtics and the Nuggets. Will it be a likely matchup between the two powerhouses for the NBA championship? You can bet on the Celtics to beat the Nuggets at plus 400, or the Nuggets to beat the Celtics at plus 425, right now. And if you're new to DraftKings, you gotta check this out. New customers bet 5 bucks to get 150 in bonus bets instantly. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app and use code SAMSON. New customers can bet 5 bucks to get $150 instantly in bonus bets only at DraftKings Sportsbook with code SAMSON. The crown is yours. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or in West Virginia, visit www.1800gambler.net. In New York, call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY. That's 467-369. In Connecticut, help is available for problem gambling. Call 888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org. Please play responsibly on behalf of Boot Hill Casino Resort in Kansas. 21 plus age varies by jurisdiction. Quite in Ontario. Bonus bets expire 168 hours after issuance. See dkng.co slash bball for eligibility and deposit restrictions, terms, and responsible gaming resources. So... I, from conspiracy theories. Can we just talk science for one quick second? Yeah, of course. You're saying that when you're launched and you go into orbit, if the Earth weren't round, you wouldn't be able to go into orbit and you would fly into infinity? The only thing that keeps you going in a circle is the fact that the Earth is round? Of course. The Earth's gravity, pull, you're going, like if you, Justin Verlander throws a 100 mile an hour fastball, it's in orbit for a couple seconds and then it hits the ground. If, he threw a 17,000 mile an hour fastball. It would just keep on going. And as it fell towards the earth, it would keep on going. It's going five miles a second that way and 10 or 20 feet a second that way. So while it drops 10 feet, it goes five miles and drops 10 feet. It goes five miles. And that shape is the shape of the earth. And that's called an orbit. That's what an orbit is. So if you were going that fast over a flat plane, you would just keep on going East. You'd never come back around. That is mind-blowing, actually. Yeah. I think we have to get Kyrie on, on the show and explain to him, because you just use very simple words, and I totally get it now. I never realized that you, when you're in orbit, it's not the engine running. It's you're just going, and you go in a circle because the Earth is round. If the Earth weren't round, you wouldn't be going in a circle. We used to watch Giancarlo Stanton hit home runs, right, at the Marlins Park. And that ball's in orbit for a few seconds. The, the problem is the orbit there's something called apogee and perigee. It's the farthest part away from the earth and the lowest part of the orbit. And his apogee was a hundred feet up in the stadium, but his perigee was way down inside the center of the earth. So that ball's in orbit. It's just going so slow that the orbit hits the earth. In fact, um, when you're in orbit around the, the earth and it's time to come back, uh, you turn the spaceship around, fire the engines, and that slows you down by a couple hundred miles an hour. And um, when it slows you down, the shape of your orbit drip dips just enough that it impacts the Earth. That's why you get back to Earth. If you can't slow down, you just stay in orbit forever, well, for decades or centuries, and eventually it'll shrink. But um, 
that's what you're doing. You're just slowing down, you're shrinking your orbit and that you shrink it the exact amount. So it hits the earth at the right spot. So you land on the runway or in the desert and not in the middle of the ocean or whatever. I feel like we're in a Christopher Nolan movie right now. So you're, <laughs> you're finishing your time in space. It's been seven mm-hmm. months. How early before departure date do you start preparing to depart? Like the day before you check out or do you have to start doing things two weeks before to get your body or some <coughs> spacecraft ready to take you home? How does that work to come home? To come back to Earth? Yes. Um, it, it starts a couple weeks before, especially the Soyuz, because it's so small. I mean, it's the front seat of your car. And there's three of you packed in there in big spacesuits with all the gear you have to bring back. Now, there's not a lot of room for gear, but um, there is some room for some things. So, and NASA had this, if we had a little electronic piece of gear that we needed to bring back, we would negotiate with the Russians and they would give us, you know, 10 kilograms or 20 kilograms of stuff. And NASA would make us wrap it in bubble wrap and then wrap it in duct tape. And so a little USB stick would be wrapped in, you know, a Coke can full of duct tape. And it was just crazy how much padding and the poor cosmonaut who was in charge of the Soyuz would have to spend weeks stuffing all of these little things in different corners of the Soyuz to come back. So it takes a couple weeks just to get ready. It's like packing for your family road trip, you know, in the minivan. Uh, There's a lot of stuff you got to (laughs) bring. How long is the trip home? How long does it take? So the Soyuz is pretty quick. The shuttle took two days because we had to do this big inspection to make sure the heat shield was safe. The Soyuz, you undock, you do about an orbit, and then you fire the engines and you're, you come back, you're back on Earth within a couple hours of undocking. Um, so basically, you have to wait until the station is at the right spot over Earth to where when you slow down, you're going to hit Kazakhstan and not Arizona. Um, <laughs> that would yeah. be a small miss, right? Like, oh, my God, we, we missed it by three seconds. We're landing in the middle of Manhattan. At, and that happened back in Mercury. Um, uh, it was Scott Carpenter, I think, missed his deorbit burn by, it wasn't minutes, it was seconds, but he landed like hundreds of miles off course and the carrier had to go find him and he got in a bunch of trouble. So yes, it's important that you hit that burn at the right time. You're going five miles a second. So every second you're late, you're missing your five miles long. So, so, there, so are you, you're in this, you're in the, the vessel. Are you scared? Is it more scary to come home or to leave home? I think, I think coming home. So we had a good, the night before we came back, me and Samantha, uh, we were talking with our crewmate, Scott, and he's like, Hey guys, you're going to think you're going to die, but you're not. Cause he had already done one Soyuz flight and it was their first Soyuz for both of us. So the next day we're in the Soyuz and the thing it's tumbling for minutes and there's flames and fireballs going by. And the Soyuz has this big um, thermal blanket on it that rips off. It's designed to rip off as it burns up. But, you know, the vehicle's banging and moaning and shaking. And there's, you hear this ripping sound as your vehicle's getting ripped apart while you're spinning. And you're feeling G-forces for the first time in six months. So anyway, we were hooting and hollering and having fun. But I remember thinking, I'm glad Scott told me that. Because if he hadn't told me that, I would think I'm going to die right now. Do you so that's my, that's my, I got advice for space tourists in here, but one of my pieces of advice is you're going to think you're going to die, but don't worry, you're not. So do you not eat before you come back for a couple of days? Because it sounds like you'd vomit. It's like a major roller coaster ride. No, I, you know what? I just, I did. But, the, you know, the big thing, and I talk about this also, um, drinking. 
you need to, we call it fluid loading. I got a really funny story about my shuttle fluid loading. I, I drank too much, but, um, while you're, you when you get into pants, space, Terry. when you get into space, you pee a lot, <laughs> not in your pants, but you're just, cause all this right now, you and I, we got a lot of fluid down our legs. And when you get into space, that all just floats up and you just pee, you know, a lot of pounds of water, you lose it. Um, and so when you come back to earth, if you don't replenish that you're dehydrated. So, I drank a lot of fluid for the shuttle and for the Soyuz flight. And after you, after my Soyuz flight, after 200 days, they stuck an IV in me, not because I needed it, but it was like, hey, we're just going to do this preemptively. And, and I felt really good. Like I was dizzy. I, that was terrible, but I physically, I felt good. So what happens? You land back in Kazakhstan and you step out of it and then all of a sudden you're back on earth and your body's okay. What, what's going through your body when your feet hit the ground? What is that adjustment like? It must be crazy. Both of my flights was, were very dizzy and very heavy. I remember on the shuttle taking my helmet to get, I was the last guy out and I was like, be careful. This thing weighs 500 pounds. Um, but the Soyuz normally it lands on the side and this big burly Russian guy reaches in, grabs you, drags you out, and sticks you in a seat. And then you just sit there and chill out for 30 minutes. Well, our Soyuz landed perfectly straight up, which is rare. So we had to crawl ourselves out. And I was last. Anton went, and then Samantha went, and then it was my turn. I was sitting there, and it was fine. And then I had to get up and slide over because the hatch was over there. It wasn't right above me. So I had to get under the hatch. And just just doing this man, the world was spinning. It was like a couple of bottles of wine. I mean, it was, you know, it was crazy. So for the first day I could walk. NASA made me get on my stomach and then stand up as fast as I can to see if I passed out from (laughs) orthostatic intolerance, you know, lightheadedness. I had to do all this crap and I I hated it, but I couldn't do it. Um, And that first day was like a bottle or two of wine. The second day was like a couple glasses of wine. I mean, I was still, I, Landed in Kazakhstan, 24 hours later, I was back in Houston. First thing I did was go to the gym for rehab, which is really important. I was, I was really diligent about that. And my son had gotten his driver's license while I was in space. So he said, all right, dad, let's go car shopping. So he, dro- he drove, I rode, I, but the first thing I did after I got back to Houston was go to the Ford dealer and look at pickup trucks for him. Um, we didn't buy one. Do you get a really um, good deal when you say you're an astronaut? Hey, I'm Terry Birds. I'm an astronaut. Do you want a space rock? Back in the '60s, I, they they used to not cash guys' checks. Like the astronauts would write checks, and people were so excited they wouldn't cash it. Now they're like, "Oh, you went in space? Okay, that'll be uh, twenty eight thousand dollars for this used car." Um, anyway, so and then the second day was like you know a couple glasses of wine, and then after a week, I did this balance test. So before launch, I did a, the balance test, and then when you land, you do another balance test where they put you in this harness in this kind of fun house room. And then they, they shake the room, they move the room up and down and back and forth. And they, they can see how long it takes you to stabilize yourself using these force sensors. And, uh, my balance score a week after landing after 200 days in space was better than it was before I launched, which I, it blew me away. I couldn't believe that was true. The scientists couldn't believe it either. But my point is I recovered really quickly and they did this DEXA scan, this x-ray scan of my body. And um, I had lost 0.0% of my overall body's bone density, which blew me away. They were surprised too, but it was because I did all this exercise uh, and I was, I was really doing my rehab. So anyway, my, 
I was very lucky. My body was kind of made for space. So would you be supportive for the civilians going into space? Do you like that program? What, what they're trying to do? Should I do that? Would you like train me? Cause it sounds like something I'd really want to do. You, you, David Sampson, absolutely should. There's a chapter in here about space tourists. You need to do that. Seriously. There's, it's totally something you should do. So there's Virgin Galactic out in uh, California, um, which is really cool. It's like a space plane. It's a piloted airplane lands on a runway. And then there's Blue Origin, which is a capsule. It's automated Jeff Bezos thing. They're both suborbital. They go up five minutes of weightlessness. You see Earth and you come back down and land right away. Um, I, that, that is something you should do for sure. Now, look, it's not, you know, there's a risk to that. That is not 100% safe. But, you know, these guys are going to make it as safe as they can. I drive on 95 in Florida. It can't be worse than that. I know. Terry, I could keep going forever. I really appreciate your time. I want people to go out and get this, get your book. It's called How to Astronaut, An Insider's Guide to Leaving Planet Earth. You want to hear about sex on the space station? You want to hear about exercise, how they eat, what they drink, how they deal with the Russian cosmonauts, how they get up and back? How to Astronauts, an insider's guide to leaving planet Earth wherever you get books. If you can support a local book place, that'd be great. But if not, go on Amazon and please read it. Terry, I don't know what to say. I appreciate your time. And uh, let's do this again because I've got like 50 more things to talk about. And I'm going to get your book and read it. And I'm going to watch the movie. Pump both movies. The movie, please, that I can watch today on Hulu. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's an IMAX movie. It's called A Beautiful Planet. I helped film it. It's a great, great. I think Tony Myers was the director for all the space movies since the 80s. I think this was her best one. And then One More Orbit's a movie that I made uh, last year. It comes out next month. We'll have to be on. I want to talk movies with you. There's so many space movies to talk about. Um, I, I didn't even baseball. get to it. I wanted to talk about gravity. I want to talk about baseball. Yeah. I want to talk about gravity and whether or not whether or not you were jealous of Bruce Willis and Armageddon when you see <laughs> movies like this. But we, we're going to get to it another time. We may have to do a part two of this because this fascinated me and I'm sure our listeners, thank you for taking the time, Terry. I really do appreciate you. This is awesome. I loved it. And I got to meet Coca finally. I've been hearing about him for months on the, on the podcast. I finally got to meet Coca. 